hi, everybody. I hope everybody's safe and sane uh, and are doing well. Um, my name's Tom. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I look forward to doing that in the future. In fact, one of my favorite things is to meet people. And at Spark, when we could get together, I'd love to greet you at the door. Uh, now I'm actually in the Zoom room and it's a great place to be to connect with people. So if you're looking to connect with some people, you might want to give the Zoom room a try. Well, we are, as a nation, in a lot of um, trouble right now, a lot of problems. Uh, it's devastating. It's horrible. It's challenging. And as we you know, grieve this death of um, George Floyd, who was lying on the ground and was literally choked to death. And as we know, this has caused lots of people to rise up, people from our church to rise up and to speak out and to protest against racial injustice and white supremacy. And this is important. We, we need to have a voice because as Martin Luther King said, just injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. But this creates this environment of like a, a wide range of emotion with anger and frustration and exhaustion. And for some, it's quite overwhelming. And this is an important conversation that we need to have. And I, I really thank Pastor Marcus for last week's sermon that he gave. It was honest. It was real. It was raw. And so, Pastor Marcus, thank you for you know speaking with us and sharing sharing from your heart. And so today, today uh, we're going to be in Ephesians, and I will continue this discussion as we look in Ephesians to see what it has to say. We've also been experiencing a pandemic with a coronavirus where about 100,000 people have died from this virus. And its impact has been hard and devastating as we look at the loss of people and sick people. And we look at the economic damage to our country, to our businesses, including our small businesses and people working. And it took a while for us individually to get it that this was serious, that we needed to observe and follow the rules of shelter in place because people's lives were in jeopardy and still are. But instead, what we saw, we saw people flocking to the beach in Southern California, flocking to the beach in Florida. We saw people going to Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And in the early days, the Golden State Warriors were still playing at the Chase Center. They were losing, but they were still playing. At least it gave us something to uh, watch. Here's the thing, my wife, Tammy, my daughter, Courtney, they recognized that this was a problem early on and they couldn't figure out why I wasn't reacting, why I wasn't fighting to um, stay home from work, why I wasn't social distancing. And the truth is, I didn't understand. I mean, this was early March where at the time there was only about 1,500 people in America who were infected by this disease. And I really didn't know about the curve. In fact, I was just truly uninformed while there was this invisible war going on. It was like I had blurred vision or I, I was asleep, even though I was awake, like so many others. And my wife and my daughter, they, they kept asking me, okay, screaming at me to wake up, to pay attention and to change my behavior for the good of my family, for my coworkers, for my neighbors. And I eventually did change because of the influence of my wife and my daughter, but also because what they were saying was right and good. 
And that's the theme of what we're going to cover in our passage today here in Ephesians, where Paul is trying to inspire the people of Ephesus to change, to live the way of Jesus. You see, it's about waking people up because there is good news, good news for the poor, good news for the oppressed and the marginalized. And it's this idea of loving those around you, your family, your community, your neighbor. And this was a revolutionary idea in this ancient culture. And it changed the way people saw one another across race, ethnicity, gender, and class. It restructured this idea of community around compassion, hospitality, generosity, and justice. And this was new wisdom, where they would see life and live out their life through the lens of Jesus instead of their culture, which is a big ask. It is, because these people had grown up and were fully immersed in their culture, just as we struggle to change today because we are fully immersed in our culture. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, to the followers of Jesus in that area, and he says in verse 14, For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You can see right away here in verse 14 that Paul is emphatically telling his readers to wake up, to stop sleeping, basically to pay attention. For it is light that makes everything visible. That's what the text says. It is light that makes everything clear. And he's not talking about their vision, seeing with their eyes. He's talking about their heart and their understanding and their wisdom comes from Jesus as he shines on them and speaks to them and influences them to do good, to do better. And then Paul, he gives them a warning. He says in verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. I want to say a word about the will of God because that can be tricky. You see, there exists within certain Christian circles this view that God has a will for our lives, and the point of our lives is to try to figure out what that will is, and then to follow it as best as we are able. Where God has one plan for us, one school for us to attend, one person for us to marry, one life for us to live, And if we don't identify that life and make choices in accordance with it, then some people might say that we are living outside of God's will. As you can imagine, this approach can cause us great amounts of anxiety and sometimes even paralysis about the choices we make. But if we actually look at the New Testament teaching on this subject, we find it's remarkably simple. You see, Paul writes to the church here in Ephesus about God's will. But he's not talking about some specific secret plan that we're to spend our life discovering. To do God's will, according to Paul, is to make the most of our time. That Greek word for time is kairos, and it's time that is measured qualitatively, not quantitatively. It's about making the most of this critical time, this critical, time, this critical moment when God is at work, when God is working through you. So essentially, Paul is saying, do God's will, 
not by magically trying to determine the future, but by, li- by living here, making the most of this present moment to love God more and to love others more. You see, you might have 10 important decisions to make and 100 possible pathways that you could follow. And you might wish that God would tell you exactly where to go. Yet Jesus only requires that we make sure that our heart is good and our motives are pure and our basic direction in life is right, oriented towards knowing God better and loving those who he has put in our sphere and bringing about his kingdom. And if you're anything like me, so often I get caught up in the anxiety of determining God's will for me in my life a year out or 10 years out that I miss living in God's will and the only moment I have to actually do that, which is now, today. The last part of chapter five, it's a big section and a well-known section where Paul is asking these people to wake up, to put their faith into action, to live the way of Jesus now, which is a good and a loving and a better way in terms of their marriages, their children and slaves. And yes, I just said slaves, and that sounds strange, and it makes me cringe because Paul is talking about slaves, which are a part of their culture, not exactly the same thing as the slavery of the 17th and 19th centuries here in America, but there were slaves in this Greco-Roman culture. And Paul is asking these people in the church to change, to live differently, to live as Jesus would in regards to what was called at that time their Household, household code. Now, to be clear, Paul didn't write about the household codes to make sure these new Christians knew about them because these people, they already knew about these codes. In fact, everyone in the Roman Empire knew about these codes. Paul is taking this opportunity to write about these codes because of what he has learned from Jesus. And while these codes are at the core of the Greco-Roman culture, they conflict with the message of Jesus. So this is key. When the people of Ephesus heard Paul's version of these codes, they would have immediately noticed that he added to them. And the changes they heard, they would have seen these changes as subversive and counter to the culture of the day. Here's a summary of what Paul writes in this section. And he's looking at three relationships. He's looking at wives and husbands, children and fathers, or parents, and slaves and masters. So starting at verse 22, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But then he adds something for husbands. He says, Husband, love your wives as your own bodies. And then to children, he says, Obey your parents. Honor your mother and father. But then there's a responsibility for fathers to parents. He says, parents, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. And slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. But masters, there's something for you too. Do not threaten your slaves. You also have a master in heaven. For many of us, this part of scripture has caused a lot of problems and confusion. And I recognize that some people, they read these verses and they fully support them, at least the part about wives and children submitting, because they view it as God's word, that it is divinely inspired, and that we should follow it exactly as it says, exactly as it is written. 
But that's not how I see it. It's not. But since this is Spark, and we value dialogue and having conversations about different opinions, I will not say that what I'm about to propose is the right way, and if you think differently, that your view is the wrong view. I only hope that you think about what I propose and consider that there may be another view to consider. Let me give you some background on these household codes. The household codes are a philosophy written a long time ago in what is truly a distant and utterly foreign land that was living in a Greco-Roman culture. And the general idea for these codes was that a free man ruled over his household as a sovereign, as a ruler, exercising complete authority over his subordinate wife, his children, and slaves. That's just the way it was. There was a patriarchy and, and gender hierarchy, which simply means that men were on top and women were on the bottom, at least in their society. To be masculine was to be positive, and to be feminine was to be negative. Masculine was the great ideal and embodied strength and power and authority, whereas to be feminine was not the great ideal. In fact, you were viewed as incomplete somehow. And so wives were expected to obey their husbands, they were to be meek and quiet, they were to stay at home, and even more, they were to be in servitude to their husbands. There was also classism in this culture, which had a hierarchy. There were parents and children, and then there were masters and slaves. Children, they were to honor and obey their parents, and the parents had absolute power over them. And slaves, they were to obey their masters, whether it was economic slavery, class slavery, or child slavery. And that was the end of it. Now, Many Roman officials believed that these household codes were such an important part of Pax Romana, this time of Roman peace, that they passed laws ensuring its protection. Because preserving this household code structure was thought to be critical to preserving society as a whole. Some scholars think that the philosopher Aristotle had a lot to do with the pervasiveness of the household codes. And his sentiments were echoed by other Greek philosophers and also by Jewish philosophers like Philo and Josephus. But here's the thing. Paul had a different view. He had a different lens because he viewed life through Jesus. And Paul, he wanted to wake up these Christians to help them make something beautiful and more loving, something that was better. Because Jesus loves and values all people. We know this. Women and men, slaves and children. In Paul's version of the household codes, Christians are being called to see everyone within the context of social inequality as equals. And to begin to upend this system, Paul addresses wives and then he addresses husbands. It's a call to a one, to one, and then to the other. They are both equal. Children are told to obey. Is this really a new command? Do they really need to be told this? Well, no, of course, this is an assumed position under that culture and even under ours today. But what is new, what is being pushed by Paul is the opposite call, the equal call to the other for the father or parents to bring the children up in the discipline of the Lord. This is not a call to the children. It's not. It is a call to the parents to be disciplined and to be submitted to the Lord. 
And it's the same with slaves. Slaves are to obey and render service, but there's this incredible phrase in chapter six, verse nine of Ephesians that says, masters treat your slaves in the same way. This is a radical statement. It really was in its day. If sla- now, if slaves are to be subject to their masters and masters are to do the same for them, then there is no partiality. So what's going on here? Well, the hierarchy that exists in this Greco-Roman culture is not the way things are supposed to be if you are a follower of Jesus. You see, the emphasis in Paul's household codes is not on the first part that wives obey, children obey, and slaves submit. The emphasis is not there because they are the assumed social structures. The emphasis is on the reciprocal call, telling husbands to do the same, fathers, parents to do the same, and masters to do the same. What you see here is a complete upending of the system, the upending of the social structure. And that's because Paul added a new ingredient to the household codes that changed their entire flavor, and that was Jesus. And speaking to them about authority, Jesus said in Matthew 20, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, friends, with Jesus, the social order changed. As Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's the thing. When Paul introduced Jesus to the household code, everything changes. And the key verse in this section on the household codes is verse 21, where everyone is asked to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this word submit, it's not a popular word today. Maybe never. But this type of submission in our passage, it's not obedience to an external authority This submission is one that comes from personal relationships and is often based on love and compassion. This submission is the voluntary, voluntarily giving up a power so that one may serve the needs of another person. And when put into practice, these Christianized household codes based on submitting to each other would break down rather than reinforce the hierarchical boundaries between husband and wife, master and slave, parent and child. You see, if wives submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, if husbands love their wives as Christ loved the early church and gave himself up for her, and if both husband and wives, slaves and masters, submit to one another, who's really in charge here? Well, the answer is no one, because such relationships could only be characterized by humility and respect with all parties imitating Christ, who time and time again voluntarily placed himself in a position of submission. And with Jesus at the center, all the old boundaries break down and the hierarchies begin to blur. So what does this mean for us today? 
Well, I'm proposing that the intent of Paul's version of the household codes was not to affirm the ancient Greco-Roman household structures as divinely instituted and inherently holy, but instead to point Christians to the example of Jesus, whose humility and love can be mirrored by his followers in any culture and in any situation. And we certainly have that opportunity now in our present moment, in our present nation. The truth is, while we have made progress, we still live in a culture that is obsessed with power, in which many inequitable power structures, both formal and informal, spoken and unspoken, seek to divide us and hurt people. And we see this clearly today with their horrific acts of violence and injustice, with Ahmaud Arbery killed by three white men while jogging with Breonna Taylor killed by the police in a botched raid while sleeping in the comfort of her own home, with Christian Cooper's life threatened by a white woman while birdwatching, and with George Floyd killed by the police as he lay on the ground pleading to be allowed to breathe. This is awful. It really is. But unfortunately, not surprising because this has been going on for centuries for people of color. In late April, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who I've really enjoyed and who really learned a lot from lately, started one of his daily press briefings on the COVID-19 by telling a story of how he would regularly start his staff meetings with this question, what day is today? And there was a gentleman that he, that he worked with who was a Catholic priest who would always respond, today is another day to do better another day to improve, another day to make life better, to be better at helping people. Today's another day that God gave us. I've heard many people who've said that they look forward to things being normal again, for life to be normal, for church to be normal, to be able to get an in and out hamburger whenever I want. Yes, that does sound good. But given what we're going through, which is which given what we're going through, which has continued to highlight the inequities in this country, I for one, and I know I'm among friends on this, we don't want normal again. We don't. We want and we need real change. Our country systems need to change because we've seen too many people suffer. And certainly, certainly this includes the elderly, the poor, and communities of color who've been dis disproportionately devastated by this virus. These are the people who represent most of our coronavirus cases and deaths. These are the heroes that work in essential businesses who couldn't work from home, but had to show up at their jobs for our sake and to put food on their tables. Or they were part of the tens of millions of people who lost their jobs at levels not witnessed since the Great Depression, and there is no guarantee that they will get their jobs back or even another job. And so how do they provide for themselves or their families? How do they pay for their health care, for their child care, for their food, for their rent? Friends, we can do better and we must do better. In our culture, we view citizens who are old as non-productive members of society, and so they feel unwanted and unneeded, and it is not uncommon that they die alone, which, with this virus, they are doing right now. 
In our culture, we have a disdain for poor people because our culture overemphasizes individualism and meritocracy. And it is widely believed that you can make it on your own if you work hard enough. But that ignores the fact that this country has rigged systems against communities of color, which does not provide equitable opportunity. And if you are poor or homeless, well, in our culture, you are characterized as just lazy, that you just want a handout. And as you know, racism is a part of our culture. We know this. As Jamar Tisby writes in his book, The Color of Compromise, history demonstrates that racism never goes away. It just adapts and oppresses people. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Omir called me the token white male pastor at Spark. And it's true. And the point he was trying to make is that white males in our culture have much of the power, the political influence, and the money to consolidate their power and to protect their comfort at the expense of women and people of color. And this fact really upsets me. It does. And it pains me that for most of my life, I didn't see how bad racism really was and is and what my role should be in combating it. And it saddens me that I've been a part of churches that practice uh, complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity, choosing comfort, ignorance, and silence over constructive conversation and learning, which created and maintained a status quo of injustice. But not anymore. I was moved by God as I read books and heard stories from so many brave people. Thank you, Austin Channing Brown and Michelle Alexander and Brian Stevenson and this community. Thank you, because it woke me up. And that's why I now have a better understanding of my privilege and how I've contributed to these problems and how I want to show up moving forward by having hard conversations with my extended family and friends and continuing to inform myself because it is my responsibility to engage and to denounce racism. Friends, we are the church. We are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We are the ones that God uses to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And we are the ones that need to push back on the system, on our culture, when it conflicts with the message of Jesus. It's us. It's our responsibility. We are the kingdom workers. Friends, we're to support our community by getting involved in doing things now. It is the appointed time. It is the critical moment. We are to feed the poor. We are to house the homeless. We are to fight for longer-term systemic change. And I hope by doing this, we will never go back to normal. We're to make sure all children have equal access to a good education equipped with the tools they need to learn, including food. We're to fight for a structure in this country that upholds the human rights of immigrants and refugees. We're to support and stand with Asian communities experiencing xenophobia that has emerged with this coronavirus outbreak. We are to demand changes in institutions where there are racial disparities like in our justice system. Friends, we are to turn upside down the known cultural norms of today to ensure real fairness, equity, and dignity for all people. 
And we can't be silent. It's important that none of us that who name the name of Jesus remain silent. We are called to be truth seekers and justice bringers and allies speaking up and standing with marginalized communities. In a society where some lives are regarded as less valuable than others. As the token white male pastor, I'm the first in line to say that I have more to learn. That is true. But I am committed to working and walking alongside all of you. Friends, we need to wake up and build a new normal. We need to make the most of this moment, the one we have today, to love God more and to love others more. And it makes me very proud to be a part of Spark as I watch how you are responding to this pandemic and these recent examples of racial injustice with your time, with your money, and with your prayers. And that is good, church. That gives me hope, and that gives others hope. So what day is today? Today is another day to do better, another day to improve, another day to make life better, to be better at helping people. Today's another day that God gave us. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your message and just thank you for who you are. So good, so holy. And Father, we ask that you shine down upon us, that you influence us, that you put things in our minds where you want us to reach out and care and love others. Father, help us to be your people. Help us to make a difference. Help us to bring your kingdom of God here to earth now. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, friends, we are the body of Christ. We are. We are his people. So now in our time of communion, let us eat and drink and remember Jesus who loves and changes people to be more like him. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Friends, the table is open and everyone is invited.